All right, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Happy Palm Sunday. And uh, as it is Palm Sunday, I want to get a little uh, practice so that we're ready next week for part of our liturgy next week. So next week, Easter Sunday, when I say he is risen, you say he is risen indeed. So let's try that again. He is risen. All right. I kind of feel like a rapper up here. When I say, hey, you say, ho, hey, ho, hey, ho. But good. We're ready for. Yeah, we got hands waving over here. Throw your hands in the air. Wave my drinks, right? All right. We won't go there. We'll stop. But uh, uh, kids, those of you who are in here, great job this morning. That was great. That, that book and those, uh, that, that album's full of just wonderful theology sung in a very, very fun way. Each song has kind of a different style. That was kind of a doo-wop. There's some all kinds of different styles throughout that. So way to go, kids, this morning. That was great. But today is Palm Sunday. And so if you've got a church background, this is the day historically when either, you know, in Sunday school, you would take your construction paper and you would cut out a little palm branch or people would give you real palm branches. You would wave those around. I see, I think we've got a palm in the back that I can see waving around a little bit. So that's what today is. But with that being today and with next Sunday being Easter, this week being Holy Week, What's going to happen on the television networks this week is pretty predictable. They're going to trot it out there and they're going to be trying to disprove this and disprove this and disprove this thing over here. And at least one of the shows will bring out, and so stereotypical, one bearded, highly credentialed with an English accent, because we always think people with an English accent are smarter. That's why sometimes I wish I was from England. Y'all might respect me a little more, but... (laughs) They'll, they'll trot that guy out there, and on at least one show, he'll, he'll make some claim that something along the lines of, well, Jesus was a gifted teacher and a social revolutionist, but he never really claimed to be God. So at least one show will trot that out there. The, the only problem with that is that Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God. Like over and over and over to the point that they killed him. That's why he died. That's why they killed him. Because he kept, in their eyes, blaspheming, claiming to be God. And so I could take you to passage after passage after passage in the New Testament where Jesus is clearly claiming to be God. He's clearly claiming to be the king of the universe where the Pharisees want to stone him for this. And so there's no denying in Christ's mind or in the Pharisees' mind of what Jesus is claiming. When he says, before Abraham was, I am. When he says, I and the Father are one. When he's talking to the woman at the well and she says, I know someday when Messiah will come, he'll explain all things. And Jesus says, I, the one who speak to you, am he. On and on and on we could go with this. But what we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time, all right, what's come to be known as the triumphal entry, that is perhaps one of the most clear examples and claims of Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the King of the universe, Son of God, God in the flesh. And so we're going to chat a little bit about that today and some of the symbolism that takes place through this triumphal entry. And so we're going to see Jesus as the king. And we're just going to kind of have some placeholders for us this morning instead of kind of some application, some placeholders for us as we make our way through looking at who Jesus is. And so I'll go ahead and give them to you uh, if you're taking notes. 
And we'll hang the meat of the sermon on these hooks. Number one, the king's ride. The king's ride. Number two, the king's praise. And then number three, the king's tears. And so if you have a Bible, make your way to Luke chapter 19. All right, Luke chapter 19. We've been going through the book of Luke here at Providence for a while. We're currently in chapter 14. But this week and next week, we're going to skip forward, still stay in the gospel of Luke, but skip forward a little bit. Uh, and then after our series on marriage after Easter, five weeks, we'll come back and pick up where we left off last week in Luke chapter 14. But Luke chapter 19, that's on page 878 in the Bibles that are around you. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one of those. Uh, it'll make a lot more sense and it'll seem a lot shorter if you're reading along with me. 878, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so here's the context, all right? It's Passover week. And so the city's slammed. Historians estimate that there's probably about 2 million extra people in the city of Jerusalem, 250,000 lambs that are about to be sacrificed. So to get a picture of this, picture Bonnaroo. And normally I'd say Bonnaroo on crack, but Bonnaroo already is. So just picture Bonnaroo, all right? Just picture Bonnaroo, maybe hyped up a little bit. So it's crazy, it, it, it's sea of humanity, there's excitement in the air, Jerusalem is packed, and it's into this environment that Jesus rides into town. And he's not walking into town quietly like he has for the previous 32 Passovers when he's come to Jerusalem. This time, he's got a huge crowd of people that are following him. A huge crowd of people that are following him. He's, he's in, verse 29 tells us he's in Bethphage, near Bethphage in Bethany. And so he, he's there. And this is where he has recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a, a man who had died. Jesus goes to the grave. His sister, you know, is telling him, well, you don't need to try to. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm going to I'm going to raise him again. She's like, no, 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 don't do that. He's been in the, the, the tomb four days in the King James. I love it. He stinketh. So he's dead. He's really, really dead. And Jesus goes to the grave, asks him to move the stone. 
and cries out to him, Lazarus, come out. And he does. A dead man comes back to life. And so word has gotten out from Bethany and Bethphage to the two miles over to Jerusalem. People are hearing this. All these crowds and throngs of people are flocking to Jerusalem. They're hearing all of these tales, whispers. Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? So people are coming out to see him, to see Lazarus. Excitement. There's, I mean, the air is just electric. Passover is going on. Two million people in the city. And Jesus, as the king of the universe, is orchestrating all of this heading into Jerusalem. Knowing that he's coming to give his life for the sins of the world, knowing that he's headed to the cross where he, the innocent one, is going to die so that we, like Barabbas, the guilty one, might go free. That's what's about to go down. And Jesus knows that he was born for this. That's what he's come to do. And so as he approaches Jerusalem, he's doing so in a very particular, premeditated, planned out way, laid down before the foundations of the earth. And so what I want to make sure that you understand is that what is happening as he comes to Jerusalem and then what's going to happen over uh, the entire week is not things that are happening to Jesus. These are things that he's doing, he's controlling, he's working in, he's planned. And so understand that Jesus is controlling. It's not happening to him. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah in him. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so he's in control. He's in control here. He's in control here. He's in control in your life, my life, your situations, my situations. He's in control in big situations. He's in control in small situations. And Luke gives us some details to show us that Jesus's control extends down even to where he says, here's how I'm going to go into Jerusalem. Disciples, I want you to go to this next village. We haven't been there. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen there. I want you to go into that village and there you're going to find a donkey, a colt of a donkey. And I want you to bring him to me. And when the guys come out and say, why are you trying to steal my donkey? I want you to tell them the Lord has need of it. And this isn't a Jedi mind trick. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids you're looking for. This is me in my sovereignty. That they know me. They've heard of me and they're going to lay it down. They're going to give it up for the Lord which should speak to us with our resources. The Lord has need of it. Take it. And so he lays all this down. The disciples go into the next village. They've never been there. And it happens. Just as Jesus said it would. And wanted it to. So these things aren't just happening. It's not happening to Jesus. He's actively making things happen to lead him to the cross where he will die and rise again for you and for me. That's his grace and that's his mercy and that's his kindness towards us. He's actively going to the cross, knowing what's about to go down. That's his grace and his mercy and his kindness to us. But it's also a great sense of comfort. That Jesus is in control even when it doesn't make sense. I mean, he died and the disciples are like, what? 
No, 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 this is not the way this is supposed to. What's going on? They, they didn't get it. But listen to me and think for just a minute. Think. Through the greatest evil that has ever been perpetrated on the face of the earth, the murder of the Son of God came the greatest good that could ever be on the face of the earth. The salvation of all who would believe. So out of infinite evil came infinite good. And so even when it doesn't make sense in our lives all the time, friends, hang on to that truth. God is always in control. God is always good. We may not always get it because we're limited and finite. But hang on. He's good. He's in control. He doesn't drive an ambulance. He knows what he's doing. And so that's what's going on. And so as he approaches Jerusalem, he's taking specific steps so that his entrance into the city is exactly how he wants it to be so that he can show us his power. He can show us his rightful kingship. He can show us his sovereignty. He can show us his control. And as crazy as it sounds, the donkey, all right, his ride, plays a huge part in this. And so let's, let's chat about that. So again, I'm just giving you meat hooks. So number one, the king's ride. Let's think about this. Because if you're like me, you're, you're thinking a donkey? Why isn't he on a war horse? Like that's what a king should ride in on, is on a war horse. Why would he ride a donkey? There's a little bit more to it. At the time of Jesus, yes, a king would normally be all ramboed up on a giant horse, Weapons glistening in the sun. He would come in looking like that. But a thousand years earlier. King David. Who everybody, all the Jews, all the Israelites, everybody loved and adored. And we're just waiting and longing for the prophecy of the new and better King David to come. King David back then, a lot of times would ride around on a donkey. Showing his humility. And that he didn't want to lord his kingship over people, but he wanted to love them. He wanted to lead them. Now, not long after the reign of King David, history shows us that the king stopped riding donkeys because it wasn't seen as noble enough. They needed to be up high. They needed to be, you know, lifted up. And so by the time Jesus, uh, time of Jesus's life, kings have been riding on a horse for thousands of years. That's what a king does. But there's this echo of David that they knew about from their, their the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, all right? The wall of the prophets in the writings. And so when Jesus comes to town on the back of a donkey, it shows his humility, but it's showing that as a descendant of David, he is fulfilling the prophecy through David of one who would come with an, who would be an even greater king with an even greater kingdom. And here he is riding the donkey of Israel's kingship. And the people flooding into Jerusalem immediately recognize this royal symbol as is evidenced by how they start going bananas and screaming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, this is a direct fulfillment 
of Zechariah's prophecy 450 years earlier when he wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's happening right here. Triumphal entry. That prophecy, 450 years, one of over 300 Old Testament prophecies comes true in the life of Jesus. And the people get it. There's no doubt. The people get it. When they saw Jesus riding towards Jerusalem on a donkey, they knew he was coming as their king. What they did not understand, though, was what kind of king he had come to be. Even though the donkey probably should have given them some sort of an idea. But they're just going nuts. They're praising him. And so let's look at this praise. That's kind of our second hook. The, the king's praise. Let's look at this praise and what we can learn about Jesus' kingship and deity and sovereignty through the people's praise. And so look at verse 36 in chapter 19 again, just to kind of get that in our mind again. Verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so the people are rejoicing. And they're not rejoicing like a lot of church folk do. Oh, I'm rejoicing in my soul. I'm rejoicing in my soul. What time's lunch? I'm rejoicing in my soul. Now they're rejoicing like that same person does when their college football team scores a touchdown. Yeah! Roll tide! Go Big Orange! Anchor down! Go Jackets! Which not many of you say, but you should. <laughs> that's how the people rejoice. They're excited. It says loudly. Something we could probably learn a little bit from. But they're rejoicing. They fling their garments down on the ground in front of the donkey. A gesture of reverence indicating their willingness for him to take everything that they have. Laying it down before him. And folks, that's how we're called to live. David Platt, the president of the IMB that John prayed for a little earlier, talks about writing a blank check to God and just laying it on the table for him to fill it in. Whatever it is, whatever you want, here's my blank check. That's how we're called to live. And so they're hailing him as a king. Tens of thousands of people on the road that are heading into Jerusalem. They're parting the way as he rides through and laying their cloaks down. John 12 tells us that they broke out the palm branches. They're laying those down. And palm branches were something that were used historically to signal like a huge victory or a hero coming to town or a king coming to town. And so, you know, a great battle. There'd be a parade. They get these out. Today, if we had a great big battle, we'd get our flags out, even with Memorial Day, 4th of July, on an, uh, Veterans Day, we get our flags out. 
And we recognize the palms were kind of the flag of their day. So they break the palms out. They're waving them around. They're shouting, Hosanna. This is out of John 12. Hosanna, Hosanna. And and here, Luke 19, the way Luke records it, they keep repeating, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're going to teach, so hang, I'm trying, I guess all this is, but which is from the Hallel Psalms, all right, which is Psalms 113 through 118, which were things that the Jews would recite at major festivals, like the Passover. They would recite it after the Passover, the Feast of Booths, all of these things. They had them memorized, all right? But what I want you to see, and so I want you to flip over to Psalm 118, particularly verse 26, is they tweaked one of the verses. This this one that that's recorded here, it's tweaked. And so page 512, if you're using the Bibles around you. Psalm 118, verse 26. I want you to see this. We'll just look at the first line of verse 26. Here's what it says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, it says blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now what are they saying in Luke 19, verse 38? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they know it's him. There's no denying they know it's him. And so they add on to it peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you've got a church background, what does that sound like? Christmas. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And so the king had come. The people get it. They're giving glory to God. The very reason we exist anyway. We have air to breathe and we have lungs to breathe it so that we can give praise to the Lord. That's why we exist. Somebody's like, well, I I don't live that way, but I'm still alive. That's because God's gracious and merciful and he's patiently seeking to wake you up from your devotion to paraphrasing C.S. Lewis here. Mud pies and slums and awaken you to the holiday at the sea that he offers. And so everyone's rejoicing, they're praising, and obviously the Pharisees do not like this. And so they're like, you need to stop this. You need to make your disciples stop. And Jesus is not like, you know what, you're right. No, he's like, no, 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 no. They're doing the right thing. But even if you were able to stop them, these rocks would still cry out. Because they're mine. These stones would still cry out because they're mine. You think Romans 8 It talks about how creation itself, because of sin, everything's broken, including creation. Romans 8 talks about how creation itself is longing for the day of redemption. And so Jesus is alluding to the fact that all these rocks on the side of the Mount of Olives are longing for what's happening to happen because it's getting closer to the day when he would die, resurrect, ascend into heaven, and then come back and restore all that's been broken. They're longing for that. And so this is, I mean, see this claim here when he's talking about the rocks would cry out to the Pharisees. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This claim of sovereignty over creation, this claim of lordship over all things. No mistake what Jesus is doing here. The Pharisees get it. They don't like it. 
And so, a couple days later, they have him killed. When the people hailed Jesus rightly as their king, notice this, he never, like, rebukes him. He never has him stop and he never denies it. Oh, no, 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 you got it wrong, you got it wrong. It's not, he never does that. He accepts it. He never denies that he is the people's rightful king. Right? And he's in control and he's working all of this. He's doing all of this on purpose. I mean, up through his life, up to this point, there's been multiple times where the people would take him, try to take him and make him their king, and he slips away. But here, he's letting it happen gladly because it's time. He's deliberately presenting himself as the long awaited Messiah. And here is the deal the people. I've been talking about they get it. But at the same time, they don't get it. Right? They get it in one way, but they miss it in another way. They get that he is the king, that he is the Messiah, but they are not hailing him as a spiritual Messiah, but they're hailing him as a political savior, a political deliverer, a political conqueror. And so basically they're trying to remake Jesus into their image. To conform Jesus into the image of the Messiah that they want. One that fits their agenda and their wants, but not their real need. I mean, it's a lot like today. As one guy puts it, there are lots of people with lots of agendas and they are happy to welcome Jesus, provided he does what they want and furthers their agenda. Political, social, financial, sexual, moral, whatever agenda it might be, they are anticipating Christ's coming and then they're going to hand him their agenda and anticipate that he will do as he is told. It doesn't work like that. We're the ones who get told. We don't tell Jesus. And the sickening part about it is this happens in the church as much as anywhere else. And when Jesus sees this, People who are so close, but so far away. They kind of get it, but not really. They rejoice over Jesus as they absolutely should, but they're rejoicing over him for the wrong reasons. They want Jesus for their purposes, not God's. It breaks his heart because he knows the eternal destruction that waits. And so number one's king's ride. Number two's king's praise. Let's now frame our notes around the king's tears. So look at verse 41 with me. This broken heart. The king's tears. And when he drew near and saw the city, again, he's on this horse, he's, or not, he's on a donkey, he's going from Bethany and Bethage, now he's going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone 
upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus doesn't cry a lot. In the scriptures, there's only two times that I can think of where it ever talks about Jesus crying. One is in John chapter 11, verse 35, where he cries at the death of Lazarus, even though he's about to raise him from the dead. He cries at the pain that his friends are experiencing. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So that's one of the places. The second one is here. Weeping over Jerusalem. And some of us were taught, son, real men don't cry. The truth is that real men don't cry for the wrong reasons. They don't cry for the wrong reasons. You do cry for the right reasons. When God's heart is broken, he weeps. And for those of you in here who are believers, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And we should have a heart like God and weep for what breaks his heart and seeing thousands and millions of people reject Jesus breaks his heart. Does it break yours? Thousands of people around you, good people, people that you like, that you work with, that you enjoy hanging out with, your friends, family members who haven't trusted Jesus, all heading for an eternity of destruction, separation from God. Does that break your heart? It breaks God's. And we, we call them good people. But the reality is that before a perfectly infinite, holy God, infinite, perfect holiness, there are no good people. Romans 3, there are none who seek good. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against our king. We've all committed treason against our king. And as treasonous, we're all deserving of God's wrath against our treasonous sins. And so it's not that there's like bad people and good people in the world. We've talked about this. There's Jesus and bad people. That's the two separations. Not good people and bad people. There's bad people and Jesus. Those are that, that's it. But the grace of God is that Jesus has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The life of perfect, sinless holiness that we're called to live, we cannot live, so Jesus lived it for us. The death, the condemnation for our sin that we all deserve to pay because we're the ones who've done it, we're the treasons, Jesus laid it down and paid it for us. He did this as our substitute in our place, for our sins. He was perfect. We're sinful. Jesus lived a perfect life for us. He died a substitutionary death. And then, as we're going to celebrate next week, He rose again in victory. So that anyone who would believe might not perish, but have eternal life. The resurrection tells us it's true. There's forgiveness. There's grace. There's salvation for all who believe. That's the gospel and he holds it out to you. But if we reject him. There's destruction. 
And what he speaks of here with Jerusalem is like it's literal and physical. It's not just like like we treat it sometime as if it's not real. It's out there someday. You know, it's coming. Someday's coming. But this is a physical thing that happens to Jerusalem. 70 AD, the Romans obliterate Jerusalem, completely destroy it. The temple is gone. Not one stone is on top of another. And as Jesus, in his omniscience, sees the city, knows what's coming in, four, knows what's coming in like six days and knows what's coming in 40 years for the city, he weeps. It was too late for Jerusalem. They rejected their king in the time of visitation. It was too late. But friends, here's the good news. It's not too late for you. For those of you who are not Christians, it's not too late. You're still alive. Jesus is still wooing. The fact that you're in this room is him doing that. There could be rejoicing today if you receive Christ as your king. He's here. He longs to save you. He's come. He, he entered Jerusalem as a king prays. He died on the cross as a king mocked. He rose again. He ascended back to the Father. And he will come again someday as the king of kings. And here he is through his Holy Spirit, holding out mercy and grace to you. If you just take it, just receive it. And so my hope for those of you who need to lose a little bit of sleep over this is that you will lose some sleep over this. And that the gospel will be like a pebble in your shoe that you try to ignore, but it gets to a place that you cannot ignore it. It's unavoidable. For those of you, I mean, that, that is my hope and my prayer for some of you. And then for others of you who can breathe and rest in what Christ has done for you. Is that in the midst of all your circumstances in your life that are swirling around you and are legit, they have implications, but still in the midst of those because of the eternity that is yours. And the satisfaction that God finds in you, not because of you, but because of what Christ has done for you and that's been given to you, been imputed upon you, that you would rest. That you would breathe out. That you would rejoice. And that in the days to come, those who are not yet Christians will become Christians. Those who are Christians would, would grow in the faith and that we would all rejoice and let our hosannas ring Loudly. Praising and glorifying and screaming with great joy. Long live the King. It's Palm Sunday. The King reigns. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that is ours in Christ. We thank you that you are a good king. You're not an evil dictator. You're not a you have all power. You have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you exercise that for the benefit of your people. You're a good king. 
who does good for your people. And we bless you for your forgiveness and for your grace, for your long suffering with us. We thank you that even as we struggle and as we stumble forward, seeking to follow you, but stumbling and failing and falling, you never quit, you never give up on us. You love us, you forgive us, you have grace. And so we bless you. We thank you. Thank you for being our king. We long for the day when we will see your return and we will catch a glimpse of the full glory that you deserve and that, that, that is intrinsic to you, that is yours. It's in you, your glory. We long for that. Come, Lord Jesus. And until you come, help us to have a heart like yours. A heart that longs for your glory to be known and made known. That all the nations, that all the peoples might rejoice. Let that fuel our way of life. Towards our neighbors and the nations. For the praise of your glorious grace. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.